0: We've got an environment in which super rich individuals from a very particular culture with a very particular type of cognitive bias. A kind of like determining the world, and that's really scary. We've been run by autistics.
1: Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next level thinking, sense making and decision making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies including AI, innovative processes and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn, I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI Learning Community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we talk with Dave Snowden. Dave is founder of the Kinevan Center and founder and chief scientific officer of the Kenevan Company. He is the creator of the extremely influential Kinevan Framework, as well as SenseMaker, the world's first distributed ethnography tool. He has held roles as extraordinary professor and visiting professor at eight universities globally, and is author of numerous highly influential articles, including as lead author of Managing Complexity and Chaos in Times of Crisis, created with the European Commission, an article featured on the cover of Harvard Business Review in 2007, and winning the Academy of Management Award for Best Paper amongst many, many other accolades. You can find more on his work at theknevin.co, that's T-H-E-C-Y-N-E-F-I-N nco C-O. So, uh, Kinevin is a Welsh word, so the uh, pronunciation is a little different, as you might expect, from the spelling. And in this episode, we uh, go deep. We talk about abductive reasoning, esterine mapping, which uh, Dave believes is uh, considerably more important than his work on the Kinevan framework ai and human capability weak signal detection and far more so stay tuned for a in-depth conversation with dave snowden dave it's a great pleasure to have you on uh, amplifying cognition
0: no a pleasure to be with you again
1: it's yeah you know, i think the frame here is to amplify cognition one of the best things we can do is probably to uh, unpack some of your uh, cognitive processes and uh, how those apply in a highly complex world. But as a starting point, uh, you point to abductive reasoning as something which, amongst other things, humans are good at or can be good at, and uh, AI is not good at. But you know, perhaps for a broader audience, it would be lovely to frame, you know, what is abduct- abductive reasoning, and where are we potentially hitting any limits with that today?
0: Um- Okay, I I think the interesting thing about abduction is it probably isn't limited, whereas induction is, but let's do a high-level summary. So you normally would talk about three types of logic, deductive, if A, then B. Inductive, all the cases of A have B, so there's some association between them, although the danger of correlation, you know, false correlation is very high there. And then abduction, which is sometimes known as a logic of hunches. So another definition would be, what's the shortest distance between apparently unconnected things? And you can look at roughly three approaches to abduction, all of which, by the way, are completely compatible with each other. So these are three lenses. One is if you go back to the original American pragmatists, which is where the idea comes from, it's about hypothesis generation. It's about suspension of belief, seeing things, finding hypotheses. Uh, In Bateson's work, both Gregory and his daughter, Nora, and we've done a lot of podcasts on this one, it's about metaphor and the use of metaphor to see things from a different perspective. And I'm currently, for example, working on some of the ways in which animals and indigenous people uh, optimize search for food where they don't know where the food is. And that gives you a whole new insight. In fact, I'm writing a paper about it at the moment. So the use of metaphor to throw ideas across. Then the third one, which is one we focused on, which is also recognizes the fact that music and drawing come before any real substantial development of language in humans. And although that you can see the original utility, the reason it develops up to the heights of, and I reveal my prejudices here, uh, Caravaggio and Wagner, is not because we enjoy it, it's because abstraction allows us to see things from different perspectives. It breaks us away from the material and we make sudden unexpected connections. Now, in evolutionary terms, that has major advantages. It has the downside in that it makes us prone to uh, conspiracy theories. But it means we don't need training data sets. Um, because actually, and, and that's really important, we're not making probability forecasts based on what's happened before. We're gaining genuine new Genuinely new insights and ways of looking at things. But it is why we have significant worries. For example, in Australia, the overemphasis on STEM education um, potentially actually destroys human innovation. And in epigenetics terms, three generations you can lose capability. So that's a, a wider worry.
1: So, one thing which you know, seem to read into your, one of your papers is that as the world becomes more complex or there's more information, then it is more challenging for human cognition to you know do abductive reasoning well
0: and I'd actually say the other way around um, I think abduction developed in humans because it actually means we can handle significantly more information um so take the classic example if you give radiologists a batch of X-rays, on the final X-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla in plain sight, which is 40 times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% of radiologists will not see it. Now, you might think that's bad news. Actually, 99.9% of the time, there will not be a gorilla in an X-ray. So we don't want to waste energy on it. So human beings evolve cognitively to reduce energy consumption in making decisions. Uh, if you look at Andy Clark's work and my work, we often scaffold our knowledge into the narratives of the society which surround us. This is distributed consciousness. So actually human beings have evolved to make sense of information at scale as a species, but not to be completely logical in each individual particular decision. And the way I often illustrate that, you know, we, we scan less than 5% of data before we make a decision. Uh, We're constantly hallucinating based on our own experience, other people's experience, our imagination. And those two things constantly interact with each other. We're not intelligent cameras. yeah, And we only pay attention if there's an anomaly. If, If you're walking down the street, you don't think about walking. But if you stumble, you start to think about it. Now, in evolutionary terms, that makes a lot of sense. If you think about the early hominoids on the savannas of Africa, Something large and yellow with very, very sharp teeth runs towards you at high speed. Do you want to autistically scan all available data? You know, look up a catalogue of the flora and fauna of the African veld, and then have to you know decide it's a lion. Look at best practice case studies on how to avoid lions. And by that time, the only book of any use to you would be the Book of Jonah from the Old Testament, which is the only example I've found of an escape manual from the digestive tract of a large carnivore written by a survivor. So we evolved to actually handle huge volumes of information by distributing consciousness into our own collect into our collective experiences as species. Yeah, so we actually take less energy. Now, if you contrast that with AI, every time you produce a training data set for any AI machine, it's the carbon footprint of a transatlantic flight because of the amount of energy it has to consume. Yes.
1: And so, well, one of the perhaps uh, detours is is around the the nature of human cognition in a changing information environment. So, as you say, yes, we are well suited if we can f- effectively use our cognition, our perception well. But I think a lot of people are not necessarily uh, are getting trapped in either, as you say, very narrow tunnel vision, uh, which is very ready and not necessarily um, having the right scope. So we want to balance between the breadth and the, the narrowness, as you say, depending on context. And that's something which is um, not everyone, not everyone's able to achieve in our current information environment.
0: Yeah, but I think that, that way of phrasing it is part of the issue. No individual is capable of achieving it. All right, so for example, what's called the problem of abduction. Yeah, which is what we had to address when I was working for DARPA, is I have an intuitive insight, you have an intuitive insight, Fred has an intuitive insight, which of us is right. Yeah? Now you can do that in a power dynamic, but some of our work, for example, is, and this is in the European Union field guide, is to use your workforce as a sensor network. So you present an idea to the whole workforce. They reply within three minutes. This is called high abstraction metadata, taking that high abstraction point. Then you look for patterns in the interpretation and you'll find the 17% have seen a gorilla. And if you found that 17%, you're open to talking with them. If they walked into the door and said, I've seen a gorilla in x-rays, you'd ignore them. So th- there are mechanisms by which we can use collective intelligence. And we didn't evolve to make decisions as individuals. I mean, don't tell anybody in cognitive neuroscience, you take Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink seriously because they'll never invite you for dinner again, right? We're really bad as individual decision makers, but we're actually very good in extended families and in in clans.
1: So that was well, so a part of the context, as you say, in, you know, in the past, we, we have thought, had you know, effectively collective intelligence, but as we scale up, particularly to large organizations or societies, one of the things is being able to have the right mechanisms uh, or structures for collective intelligence, and and I and I think we are. Well, there's, there's a long, there's a long way to go to be able to both have those in place and these more broadly adopted.
0: Yeah, I'm a bit more optimistic on that side. There's areas where I'm fairly pessimistic, but this I'm more optimistic. And one of the interests, in, and this is a hypothesis; it's not proven yet. Is we know that hordes could gather faster than the fastest horse could gallop, if you go back to the steps. Yeah, and we know there is actually no an argument. That's because we're really good at picking up pheromones. Uh, it's not shamanistic behaviour. It's it's pheromones which spread fast, fast, and we know that pheromones are key to determining human trust. So historically, we've had lots of ways we can make decisions collectively, often of which we're unaware. Now, one of the things we can do with technology, as I say, is, you know, we can create employees of sensor networks. We've now completed the experimental phases on using school children, the sensors into their communities as ethnographers every week. Now, one of my ambitions, which we're seeking funding for, is to have every 17-year-old in every school in the world act as an ethnographer into their community, which means we've got real-time access to how people are thinking in, you know, at, at a school district level. And we've proved we can do that in Sweden, in Wales, in Columbia, and elsewhere. So what technology is giving us a mechanism to be the equivalent of the phenomenon trace. Um, but we've got to use it wisely because, yeah, if you look at what happens with the internet, you get these clustering of pervert structures of narrative. Because everybody's fussed about algorithms to tell you what's true or false. What you should focus on is making sure what comes into it in the first place is accurate. And that's a lot easier. And that's what we're doing with things like the school program.
1: That's fantastic. Um, Is there any, I'll find them more and put them in the show notes. I'd love to, any references on that school program. That sounds fantastic.
0: Yeah, our website has got, stuff on citizen engagement, which is where that comes from.
1: Okay. Very quick break to point you to amplifyingcognition.com. You'll find our stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense making and decision making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thoughtweaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies and far more. And back to the show. So want to dig into the theme of estuarine mapping, which you... Describe as more important, I, I believe, than your Kinevan framework, which is extremely widely uh, uh, used. So, we'd love to just start with the what, the where the metaphor of estuarine mapping comes from, and to lay out, I suppose, the what this is, or so at the high level, how people can frame what estuarine mapping is.
0: The, the way my company does research is we've rejected the concept of empirical study, right? because my background is physics and philosophy. From the point of view of physics, no social scientist ever has enough data to form any valid conclusion anyway. And management scientists tend to be even worse. They go for very limited data sets. Yeah, you, know, you get the false correlations and also the world is changing very rapidly. We're probably gonna see two more plagues in my lifetime and I'm 70 next year, All right? So the idea that you can take a series of cases studied by academics over the past five years and create a recipe for success from that, I think is just fundamentally flawed. Yeah? And you can see that in the fan cycle um, that nobody can find a way to do that. It also tends to focus on context-free. So what we do instead is given an issue or problem, we actually go away and study it in the natural sciences. Yeah. And that normally takes about five to six years. Then you start to experiment with it. And that normally takes another three to four years. Then you've got something you can make into a tool or create an open source method from. So that's like theoretical physics to experimental physics to engineering. It's kind of like the way we do it. Yeah. So S-strand mapping came from a few bits and pieces started to come together. One is we knew that energy was critical. We knew from the work of Clark and Seth and others that, and this links in with Freeson, that energy minimization was key in human evolution. And then every year I go to this thing called How the Light Gets In, at Hay-on-Wye, which is really worth everybody knowing about. Um, so there's the main book festival. Hay-on-Wye hey is known as the the town of books. It's just inside Wales on the English border. And it's nothing but second-hand bookshops. Take a Kindle there, it will probably get broken, right? And every year they have a 10-day book festival, which is great for kids because they get to meet their favorite authors. Um, and in parallel with that, there's a four-day festival of music and philosophy, which is every 40 minutes, another three philosophers or scientists or politicians in the debate, and occasionally half-day courses. So it's this wonderful festival, yeah? And I've got a lot of ideas from it. So one year I had a lecture on constructive theory and physics. Yeah? And this is quite exciting. It's come out of quantum mechanics. And it's the first attempt to describe a system as a whole, rather than find the smallest possible particle. And and, and I quite like quarks. I think we went far enough with quarks. I think we should have stopped there. They come in threes, they're cute. Right? um And the concept is you identify this, Carl Hedder calls it the science of can and can't. So the first thing you do is identify what can't change, so gravity can't change. Then you identify constructors, and a constructor is something which transforms things, and I don't mean that in the sense of transformation programs. I mean it in the physics sense. So it transforms things while remaining substantially unchanged in the act of transformation. And so, at a very high level, their basic summary is: you know, map the counterfactual, the things which can't be, map the constructors. Whatever has the lowest energy gradient will win. And there's a pretty seminal paper they wrote applying constructor theory to evolution. So, if you see evolution as the most energy, op- you know, most energy efficient, yeah, it's a very different way of looking at it. Uh, it's a brilliant paper, I think. So I picked up that. We were also using the constraint. Um, based approach to complexity that comes from Giraro and others. And so we started to say, well, actually, we might be able to do something with this. So we started to say, let's identify the constraints and the constructors. And technically, you can call a constructor a constraint or vice versa. But in in terms of making things practical, it, it makes a lot of difference. So we go to somebody and say, look, there are three things. Well, first of all, there are actors. So And actors are generally roles or functions, very rarely people. Yeah? Secondly, there are constraints. Constraints can contain things or they can connect things. Then there are constructors and constructors transform things by passage. Process ritual does that by presence. Yeah. So everything changes sometime if something else is present or by contagion, they create imitation. So, and more or less every executive can get that. We then brainstorm that and that goes onto a grid between energy cost of change and time to change. And there's a key principle here. If nobody can agree on something, they break it down until they can agree. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we want an accurate situational assessment, which isn't a compromise. And human beings are incapable of assessing a situation objectively if they're thinking about what we should do next. Yeah. If you're in a strategy session, you're choosing the evidence to support your own forward action. So we've done a lot of work to prevent that. This does that. Yeah. Because nobody can say about what we should do. It's all about, well, what is there? Well, break it down until we agree what it is. Where is it placed on the grid? Well, break it down till we agree on that. So what we're doing is we're mapping where we can change things and we can't. Because everything on the northeast section of that grid? Yeah. The upper right. Is in effect a counterfactual. The energy cost of change and the time to change is too high. And then we draw a liminal area next to that, which means we can't change this, but somebody might allow us to. And the vulnerable line in the bottom. And then the really simple thing, which comes next, is you just take there's nine different action types in which you take a constraint or a constructor and you either reduce or increase the energy cost of change. That's the project. You stabilize it, you monitor it, you destroy it, you say it's a conditional change. There's a whole catalog of these. And you don't ever say what we're going to do. What you do is you try and change the energy gradients of the landscape. So the way I summarized it once, you want the energy cost of virtue to be less than the energy cost of sin before you even start to intervene. Now it's proved a hugely valuable, it's taken off in six months, which has never happened before. And it's proved hugely valuable in reducing conflict in strategy. So and we're now basically saying, look, do this before you do something conventional. Because if you do the classic system thinking approach of get everybody together in a room, agree where we'd like to be, you're probably going to end up in the counterfactual domain almost by definition, because you're going to get idealistic. And so this is called an affordance landscape as well. Yeah. So kinda like it's everything southwest of that line is where you can play. Now, the reason we called it estuary is I didn't want people to confuse constructive theory with constructional law, which is Bayesian. And I'm not wild about that anyway. It's thermodynamics, not quantum mechanics. And it's, in Deleuzean terms, it's arbitorial. So it assumes everything is always flowing in one direction and branching and branching and branching. And one day, in intense frustration about a couple of consultants who love the stuff, Um, It's the Enlightenment myth of steady progress to an ideal future. I said, it's not a river for God's sake, it's an estuary. And an estuary, the water goes out, the water comes back. Um, You can cross it at the turn of the tide, but not when the tide is flooding. There are sandbanks which change every day. The brackishness of the estuary indicates the speed of flow. The granite cliffs only have to be checked every 20 years. And that's a really powerful metaphor for uh, effectively a situ, um, this is a situational assessment tool, and Kinevin is a decision support framework, and it's you know it's it's in its twenty fifth year now, and it's getting more and more adoption. It's not a complexity framework, yeah. It uses complexity. This is a pure complexity framework, yeah. it, and it and it it what it's doing is taking the complexity principle that you scale by decomposition and recombination. So what it does is decomposing and decomposing until you reach agreement. Then it allows recombination so that you get novelty.
1: So I'll I'll put notes in the show notes for those who want to delve deeper. So one of the, just taking a step back, so uh, David Deutscher created the constructor theory. And I think it really goes to the heart of his work in making the distinction between what is possible and what is not possible. And if it is possible, then that is all of the, the playing space that we have. Which we can explore, you know, whole variety of ways, and be able to construct or find the ways, mechanisms to be able to create that. And what we'd like to dig into just a little bit is the distinction between, you know, call them the hard sciences and the social sciences. So you describe some of the structures where you are, uh, you know, pulling, taking the mechanisms or the approaches of physics, but. These are also, you're, you're you know, applying this to then some a uh, lot, lot less uh, structured or easily quantifiable structures like social sciences. So how does that map from those hard science approaches through to the social sciences?
0: Yeah, We, we call it praxis. And I'm going back to the 70s now when we used to say praxis makes perfect. So it, it's theory-informed practice. Now, the problem you've got in social science, and there's a major crisis in psychology at the moment, because people are trying to replicate the original experiments, and they don't replicate um, in the main, right? And if you look at adult development theory, which is a particular bet noir of mine, I now agree completely with Nora Bates and that it's eugenic in nature, then everybody has evidence-based to support completely different models of development stages, because what they do is they have a hypothesis, they test the hypothesis on people, and lo and behold, the hypothesis is confirmed, right? So in, in natural sciences, uh, you basically, other people repeat your experiments. You may have the theory right, but other people can check the theory, then people practice it. So if you haven't got replicable experiments by third party agents, the best you've got is explanatory power. There's nothing wrong with that. So for example, we use Deleuze in epistemology a lot and particularly assemblage theory. But I can map an assemblage theory to a strange attractor in complexity science. So I think what we're doing is saying the way human beings make decisions, the way systems work, gives you a hard core of fact that you can rely on. Yeah, you don't have to rely on cases. So you start with that. And then you test experimentally to see if you can achieve results, but always consistent with the theory. On the other hand, you know, the humanities, I would say more than the social sciences, humanities has has explanatory power. And that's what you see in philosophy and anthropology. You won't see anybody in philosophy and anthropology who anybody would respect who is trying to pretend they're real scientists through surveys. I mean, Warren Bean has called it physics envy which is a delightful play on words, right? So I think the use of the humanities with this explanatory power and its abductive reasoning capability combined with physics to give you, shall we say, a scaffolding, a coarse scaffolding around how things work is a much safer way of going forward under conditions of uncertainty.
1: Absolutely. Which, which I think takes us back to the beginning in the sense of Abductive reasoning being a human attribute, and AI having, uh, you know, using very, very different structures. So, I suppose the broad question is, you know, there are dangers, of course, in using AI in to support our cognition and decisions, and framing and thinking and experience. But there are also we would hope some opportunities. And so, I'd love to sort of frame, sort of how this you know, the current, I suppose, divide between what we frame as AI in terms of its thinking structures and human cognition and where those could be brought together to create something which is better than the sum of the parts.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be worried if if it was going to be intelligent. Um, But it isn't. It's just a super fast set of algorithms. That's what's really scary about it. Um, and there's a book by Neil Stevenson and he and I have worked together with Singapore government called Dodge in Hell, which generally is a bad book, actually, apart from the first three chapters, which are brilliant, which basically posit a future in which only the rich can have their information curated. Everybody else is sold to an algorithm. And there's an example of somebody crucifying themselves because they're sold to a religious group who want to, as an example. And to be quite frank, that's pretty close where we are. There are AI bots now which tailor a lie to people and give it to them on social media as they're approaching the ballot box. All right. So this stuff is significantly scary. And the recent debacle really worries us because the people who wanted to inhibit or at least know how to control these things lost out to the religious AI people, you know, who are kinda of like within the American tradition of the rapture. They think, you know, miraculously AI is going to save humanity. Right? So that really worries me. Um, On the other hand, um, and also, they can't think abductively. And by the way, I'm dyslexic. Dyslexics think abductively all the time. And we can't understand why other people haven't seen the connections. I can't read a book, a line at a time, other than with significant effort, because I'm looking for patterns. So what we can do, and this is where we did our original work on DARPA, is the big thing on AI is what are the training data sets? So we originally developed the software SenseMaker to create epistemically balanced training data sets to avoid the problems you see in schoastic parrots, which was written by a Google employee and published by an ex-Google employee because Google didn't like what she said, right? And the co-authors. So I think, yeah, and RAG isn't enough, right? The the real focus needs to be on training data sets. Now, if you do that, and this is our stage three um, which we're going to be coming to next year, the year afterwards then I can create what are called anticipatory triggers. So I can use past terrorist examples. <clears throat> I can use examples of people finding novel solutions to poverty, et cetera, to trigger very quickly humans to pay attention to something which is sowing a similar emergent pattern. And that's, you know, we're now saying there are two things which kind of like start to replace scenario planning because scenario planning relies on some historical data in some way or other. It's not just imagination. Um, And two ways which we can handle that. One is esterine mapping is a new foresight tool. Because whatever has the lowest energy gradient is what's likely to happen next. And that's probably more predictable than a scenario. And the other is to create training data sets from past history at a micro level. This is the decomposition which can trigger alerts so that human beings will pay attention to anomalies before they can become very anomalous. And that, that's a key principle in complexity. You want weak, It's called weak signal detection. You want to see things very early so you can amplify the good things and dampen the bad things. Conventional scanning only comes to them late. So the right training data sets, the right algorithms, we can hugely improve that capability in humans. So there are things we can do with it. But the main danger at the moment, to be honest, is that human beings will become dependent on it. And human beings like magical reasoning. And yeah, you know, I can smell snow come in my children's cart. It doesn't take long for humans to lose capability. Yes.
1: Yeah. I think over-reliance is definitely one of my, my biggest fears, and I think we're moving towards it. But on the AI model, so a lot of what you're describing is the cur- curation of the training data is is fundamental to be able to create that. Is there anything in terms of the interfaces or the way in which we pull things from the uh, large language models that can also be useful?
0: We're currently experimenting. I mean, we've been doing this now with a couple of companies. We're about to release it for other people to use with measuring attitudes to the use of AI in companies. All right? Because attitudes are lead indicators, compliance is a lag indicator. And what we're starting to do is to test the degree to which your employees can discriminate between real data and AI data. Because if you lose the discriminatory capacity, then you've got a problem. Yeah. So what we're looking at is a rolling program in which people are constantly seeing anomalies because they suddenly discover, oh my God, that wasn't a real person or, oh my God, that was a person and human beings learn more from anomalies than they do from anything else. So that's what we call micro-stimulation and micro-nudging. So I think that's going to be critical. It's the ability to understand the limits and capabilities. Um, So that's one thing. I think political control is the one thing which worries me most because I don't see that happening. Um, But that's a wider danger. I mean that. The big danger in you know, for geoengineering is somebody like Musk will just decide to do it, you know, without any control. So I think that's the problem we've got. We, we've got a environment in which super rich individuals from a very particular culture, with a very particular type of cognitive bias, yeah, are kind of like determining the world, and that's really scary. We've been run by autistics. Yeah?
1: Indeed. So. To round out, is there any recommendations you would make to listeners, which could be simply to dig deeper into your work or anything else which is around in this uh, extraordinary world we live in today, uh, things that they can do to enhance their cognition?
0: I mean, the key thing for me is people need to be reading broadly. Yeah. And we need to stop reading the shallow skimming books you know, the airport bookseller, I, I can tell you how to use cognitive neuroscience to change your personality type. If you read those, you deserve everything you get, all right? Um, But if you look at Andy Clark's latest book, you know, I could give you a whole list of books. Sorry, Andy Clark was the one I finished the other day. Um, there's eminently approachable reading, you know, with a fairly basic reading thing in cognitive neuroscience, in physics, um, Helgoland is a really good introduction to quantum mechanics. You can get the essence of it, right? You, you need to read broadly and widely. You know, read Delanda. I don't expect anybody to read Deleuze in the original, but Delanda translates him, but in a way which is authentic to the original. So it's read broadly, think broadly, talk broadly, and do not allow your information sources to be controlled for you and limited.
1: I think that's fantastic and very important advice thank you for your time and your insights and all of your uh work dave really appreciate it
0: yeah, it's a pleasure
1: thank you for listening to the show if you really want to amplify your cognition go to amplifyingcognition.com where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.